0: All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. I'm especially excited today because we have with us David Schwed, the CEO from Halborn Security with us today. This is one of the guys uh, that you don't run into very often in life, and I'm going to let the episode explain what I mean there. So let's get David on the stage right now. David, welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I met you over at Solana Breakpoint last year, and we had the pleasure of just sitting down and chatting over a cup of coffee just about the markets, security, things in general. Um, But before we get into all that stuff, give us uh, a little bit about your background for our listeners that aren't familiar with you yet. What were you doing before you got into the crypto space?
1: Sure. Um, I like to talk about my career in like three different arcs. Uh, You know, the first part of my, my arc was... Just in TradFi, you know, working at companies like Citicorp prior to the merger with uh, with Citigroup, uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, Marsh McLennan, Solomon Smith-Barney. And I worked in various infrastructure roles. Uh, and at a certain point in my career, I gravitated towards risk management and internal audit. And that was like the first light bulb in my head that went off that, you know, I don't want to be just labeled as someone who's technical. I started to see the connection between what I did from a technical perspective and how I'm actually helping a business achieve their objectives through technology. And I started looking at it through a different lens in the lens of managing risk. And I started interfacing with the different heads of businesses as opposed to just being siloed within a technology unit. And I started to really understand the challenges that the different heads of the businesses were facing as it relates to technology. So that was like the first phase of my career. Um, In 2008, I co-founded a telecommunications company, uh, which we ran for about 10 years um you know we bootstrapped the entire thing and it was it was you know fairly successful for a bootstrap company you know we we went up to about 45 people about 27 million dollars in revenue uh we were acquired back in 2018 and you know after we were acquired uh well actually during while while i was running the company is where i got introduced into into blockchain one of uh, my clients uh was a very early adopter and we became very close with him and you know I started getting interested in it in the sense not that this is going to be worth money or this is going to start disrupting financial markets, unfortunately, because I would have bought more, but it was really more about this concept of this decentralized ledger that has this built-in resiliency that you, there's no centralized authority that could just go in and make changes to this ledger. And, you know, in my head started spinning as to what the potential use cases for this. And again, it wasn't financial markets. It was just more about potential replacement of just ledgers and databases in some respect. Um and when my company got acquired, I was just looking for my next opportunity. And this particular individual was working over at Galaxy Digital. And he was telling me how they're looking for their first chief security officer. And being a fan of digital ledger technology since you know, around 2012, um, I saw this as a, as a great opportunity, number one, to take my love of blockchain and digital ledger technology, as well as my entrepreneurial side and say, you know, there really isn't a playbook for security yet, although this is at this point, 2018, The technology has been around for a couple of years, but there's no NIST framework. There's no COSO or there's no COVID or ITIL. Um, There's, you know, I can't just Google best practices in blockchain security. So I took it as a challenge of how do I stand something up when it hasn't really been done before. So I went over to Galaxy Digital. I stayed there for about a year. Um, I've always had in me my uh, bug to get into academia. So I left Galaxy Digital and I went into academia to stand up the cybersecurity program for a university over in New York. Uh, I did that for about a year. I'm still affiliated with the university, but I, I kind of took put that on the on, the, on the, the I guess the burner at the moment and um, <clears throat> still affiliated as like a practitioner in residence and really helping them form the curriculum. But I was approached to take on the position of global head of digital assets technology for b and Mellon, which is, you know, the largest custodial bank in the world, custodying somewhere, I think at this point, like forty five or forty six trillion dollars worth of fiat. And, you know, again, this was the perfect opportunity of. Greenfield, standing up a new organization within the largest bank or the oldest bank in the world, um, you know, building out custody for the largest custodial bank in the world. And this was like, you know, dream project for me. And I stayed there for about a year. Um, you know, as the project was was nearing launch, um, you know, I decided to look for a new opportunity. And then I landed on Helborn, which was, you know, marrying the best of both worlds for me. It was, um, you know, figuring out cybersecurity in this new blockchain world. And that's where I am now.
0: A fantastic story. And in case there are some of our users who have not heard of Halborn, it's one of the most respected security firms in the blockchain space. There's companies like Solana, Yuga Labs, ThorChain, Avalanche, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that use you guys to audit their smart contracts and monitor their systems and things like that. So uh, first and foremost, we're very, very grateful for everything that Halborn does in this space to keep our companies and our funds and tokens safe. Well, let's talk um, about... Risk, first of all, let's start there. To the average person that's listening, this is a four-letter word that they've never heard before. And it's kind of scary when you hear one of the first time. what does that mean? You know, we're just coming off of uh, the meme coin craze here in crypto, where other four-letter words like Pepe and things were the hot topic of uh, the month, and you know, flavor of the month, as I like to call it. And then it burns out, flames out, and people are left, you know, pretty much destroyed for lack of a better term. If you don't manage your risk in this space, you're going to get got somehow, whether it's a bad investment that goes to zero or a bad decision at 3 a.m. when you're curious about something that leads you connecting your wallet to a new website that drains everything. Uh, There's so many different things you have to look out for in this space. Can you give us some one-on-one risk management things just for the average consumer that are listening, trying to get into this space for the first time? And I know that could lead to a 45-minute answer, but however you want to answer it, and however long you want to answer it, please just go ahead and give us a primer of the different things of risk that we need
1: to be aware of when we enter this space. Sure. Um, You know, I I think it's important to understand first, let's talk about custody, right? That's the foundation of everything we do in, in security is what does it mean to custody crypto? And there's a whole bunch of different buzzwords and there's a whole bunch of different, um, you know, tactics and there's a whole bunch of different processes that people talk about. You know, some one side of the camp will be shouting, not your keys, not your crypto. And then the other side will be saying, well, you know, if you're not a security person, you really shouldn't be taking on custodying your own crypto. So I think it's first fundamentally to understand that this is cryptographic in the sense that this is essentially, if you boil it down to it's it's what we refer to as, you know, PKI, public key and private key infrastructure. And the core essence of blockchain is where do you store and hold these private keys? And I think that for everybody listening who wants to enter into crypto or to understand risk is that's probably fundamentally where the largest risk is, is how are you safekeeping and safeguarding those private keys? And there's different methods of doing it. There's, you know, cold wallets and hardware wallets and hot wallets and, you know, desktop wallets. And some of them are desktop cold wallets if they're on an air gap laptop. I think There's not a great answer, honestly, at the moment, you know, there's so many different types of technology and so many different types of solutions. But I think if you fundamentally understand what a wallet is and that it's holding your keys, you can really start asking the right questions as to which technology am I using? Am I using a hardware wallet? If I'm using a hardware wallet, which hardware wallet? You know, Ledger's been in the news lately for a new feature that they released, you know, as a cybersecurity purist, um, I don't like what they did. However, as someone who wants crypto to be adopted for the masses, I don't disagree with what they did. And I know that's, you know, kind of competing viewpoints. Um, but, you know, if you're looking at um, if you're looking at your, your, your wallet and you need to have these keys, there needs to be a safe mechanism which to back up these keys. And I think Ledger's solution isn't necessarily a bad one for those who don't necessarily have the means or the knowledge of the wherewithal to back up their keys themselves. So I think Fundamentally, number one, get a real, wrap your head around custody and really understand what is actually happening when you're custodying your keys and when you're safeguarding and when you're backing up your seed phrase. Um, the second piece is really, you know, you mentioned, you know, clicking on, you know, certain links. You know, to understand threat actors, they prey on urgency. So if there's a drop, if there's you have to get into this now or if you have to click this link and there's only 50 airdrops that are going to be available, you know, that should signal to you that there's probably something that's happening. Um, You know, you most of the population, 99 percent of the people are not going to be the first to know about something. If you're hearing from something from somebody, you're probably the exit for the scammer and just be aware of that. You know, we're, we're not super tapped into that community or most people are not super tapped into the community to get that heads up of a drop before it's going to happen. If you're reading about it on a discord channel, if you're reading about it on Twitter, um, you're most likely, like I said, the exit for a scammer. So don't prey on the sense of urgency look at this as a regular sort of investment and just like you wouldn't run and buy a stock because there's a countdown, you know, ticking, you know, and then you're going to turn around and sell it for 500 yield. If something is too good to be true, there's probably something that's going on with it. So, I would just tell people to kind of slow down a little bit, think and just think to yourself, am I is, is there any sort of a pressure to make any sort of action and if there is, there's probably something malicious behind it. So, those are kind of like the two things that I think I would kind of right off the top of my head to discuss.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer. And let's talk a little bit more about custody because we've got, you know, as you mentioned, the hardware wallets or, you know, cold wallets for retail, which is like a tiny little device that stores your Mm -hmm. private key on it. And you can lock it away in a safe or safety deposit box, depending on, uh, you know, if you move around a lot. Um, But there's other needs besides there. There's institutional custody for hedge funds and venture capital groups, but there's also banking security like what you're building at BNY Mellon. And in order for national banks to start holding your crypto the same way they hold your dollars, uh, they need all kinds of extra infrastructure and extra layers of security that the rest of us either, I don't want to say we don't need, but uh, there's a lot of other features. For instance, the average person is not going to be responsible for 50 million accounts of other people. We don't have to have accounting features in place and, checks for you know 50,000 employees that could potentially be touching these things and that has to get built out for banks where again institutions maybe only need that for 10 people but not 10 million so where are we at in terms of development for banking grade custody software what's a state of the union address for that
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, just just from my work at Halborn and, you know, just in in the roles that I sat at at BNY, you know, I could tell you that, you know, all all the banks are building. So whether they're utilizing, um, you know, a technology provider, you know, like a a Fireblocks or a Copper, et cetera, like a BNY or State Street, uh, or they're building something themselves, they're all building their versions of custody. And, you know, one of the advantages of building or working with a bank from a custody perspective is, you know, budgets... While I'm not going to say that budgets are not important, they're not necessarily like the top of mind. You know, it's not we only have X to build with, and let's build the best that we can do with X. So it's really more about how do we fundamentally build an, an architecture that is secure end to end. And while a lot of people focus specifically on the safeguarding of those keys, you know, whether you're using MPC (multi-party computation) or you're using HSMs (hardware security modules), and I can get into you know the differences between the two, or, or you're using a combination of the two. Um, you know, there's other points in which there's vulnerabilities within that architecture that I think banks are uniquely aware of. Uh, so for example, if you're receiving client instructions of their of their destination address, or you're displaying, you know, your deposit address as a financial institution, that's a potential threat vector that if I was a threat actor that I would probably focus on f- before potentially breaching an HSM, or, you know, potentially breaking you know, key shares, you know, amongst multiple different cloud providers or on-prem. So it's really understanding that, you know, threat actors think in some respects, or well, they're like water, right? They're gonna to go to the weakest point. And if you necessarily focus all of your attention on building out, where am I safeguarding the keys? And you don't look at things like, well, how am I receiving the instructions? How is my code from a DevOps perspective or from a CI/CD perspective, how does it make its way from development to staging to UAT to production? you know, that entire plumbing is, an also, is also another piece of, um, uh, of, of, the, of the attack vector, And the other piece, too, is insider threats, right? So if you identify multiple people within an organization and you look at, you know, can they collude, whether it's three people, four people, five people, the reality is there is going to be that number within, a, within any institution where if X amount of people got together and colluded, that they might be able to do something malicious. So you have to operate under that assumption that you're not necessarily fully protected from an an insider threat if that group grows large enough. If you can get a group of 15 people that potentially have access to all your different environments that include the people that check the logs, you're always gonna have that X amount of people. So it's really number one about also building detective type controls too. So a lot of people focus on preventative controls. How do I keep people out? I think you also have to operate under the assumption of, somebody's going to be able to get in and how do I detect that? And then how do I develop circuit breakers in order to potentially shut down uh, your systems while you investigate while something's happening?
0: Yeah. And we know from SIM swapping that it's very easy for bad actors to infiltrate some of the largest corporations in the world and get away with screwing around with people's accounts, even bypassing their pin codes and giving hackers full control of their phone numbers, which allow them to do all kinds of other horrible things after that. So, yeah, you do have to build a system that you assume is operating within a hostile environment, and that can definitely take a lot of time and should take a lot of testing before it goes live. This isn't the kind of thing where you just build it in six months and then deploy it. You need to get it right the first time in order for the public to have confidence in you, especially if you're the first bank to be offering custody. Yes, maybe you have the cash to backstop some kind of Uh, security breach if it were to happen, but the damage to your reputation going forward, maybe something that you can't fix. So I think that's really important that they do that, but it's good to know that banks are taking this approach, which then makes you think is all this regulatory fire that's going on in the U S is this all just a smoke show? Is this just a charade to try and slow things down? So banks can finally get ready, and then when they're ready, uh, favorable laws will be passed. You know, how do you interpret this from where you're sitting?
1: You know, it, it's interesting you bring that up. I, I just got back from Money 2020 in Amsterdam, and you know, the the sentiment over there is much different, right? You know, I'm, I'm walking the floor, and everybody's openly talking about crypto. And you know, I'd say you know most of the the people that were. Uh, you know, displaying booths for more on the payment rail side. So tons of companies are onboarding into, into crypto, wealth boarding into fiat or, you know, vice versa, you know, or, or doing both. Um, I think it really depends on, on the, the regulatory climate. So in Europe right now with, with the passage of Mika, you know, there is a clear pathway, not for everything, right? You know, they were, you know, noticeably absent on talking about DeFi, but there was a clear path forward for, you know, we refer to them as VASPs in the States over there, they're from, you know, you know, crypto asset service providers in order for them to, you know, list, you know, all of these tokens, you know, there, again, there's a, you know, a, a listing requirement, you know, there has to be a white paper and it has to go through the risk and there has to be capital reserve requirements for stable coins. So there is a clear path forward over there. I think what's happening in the States, I think is twofold. Um, I think it's a combination of they're cautious and rightfully so that they don't necessarily want to miss the boat um, on, you know, passing regulation. And then there's this onslaught of, of crypto, and then there's a adverse effect to the financial markets, because I think we have to recognize and understand that the regulator's job is to protect um, and they feel at this point that maybe that they don't have enough knowledge or they're still figuring things out. So at this point, the absence of regulation could just be them trying to figure things out because, you know, any conversation that I've had with regulators, uh, you know, they're not a no it's, we have to figure this out. There's tons of questions being asked, you know, it's determining whether or not this is a security or not a security, and is it regulated by the CFTC as a commodity, is it regulated by the SEC, is it not a security, and if not, who's regulating it? You know, and then you start talking about, you know, if it's, uh, you know, under the, the, the custody side, or is it, a, is, it a, is a state trust license enough, or, you know, should it be at the federal level? So yes, I'd love the government to move a little bit faster, but I understand the apprehension that this is a completely new world and it has potential you know, material effect on the worldwide financial markets. Um, so I think we have to be somewhat patient. Um, I don't necessarily agree with, with um, you know, Commissioner Gensler's uh, approach of enforcement by, by um, I'm sorry, regulation by enforcement. Um, you know, if, if he's, you know, bringing enforcement actions against certain, that means he understands what they didn't do. And then there should be conversely, here's the, here's the clear path forward. Um, so that's, that's, that's my two cents, but I I think it's coming, like I said, from a place of wanting to do the right thing and just, you know, wanting to take it slow and methodically.
0: Something you mentioned a little bit earlier saying that the water flows to the weakest point. That got me thinking, what is the weakest point right now in blockchain security? Is it the language that these smart contracts are written in? Is it the fact that these smart contracts are transparent in the first place and anyone can read how they work as opposed to having them be encrypted? Is it just the, the users that can easily be manipulated by human emotion and social engineering?
2: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from.
0: What's the biggest focus that we need to have as an industry to kind of shore up that this gap?
1: So it's a great question. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it's one particular. I think there's probably two or three. You know, one is definitely people. Um, you know, I, I think operational security for a lot of small projects and even, you know, decently well-funded projects are lacking. You know, there's a basic lack of understanding of how operational security should work. Um, you know, just little things like telegraphing where you're going to be, Uh, at a conference. Um, You know, most of these projects are not necessarily taking custody as seriously as they should. So it's generally like a mix of, you know, let me do a Gnosis safe on some ledgers amongst the founders. And if you understand where the founders are going to be at any particular time, you know, now you have, you know, physically owning some of their machines. You know, most of these people are bringing their work laptops. So I think people and operational security are definitely one area. Um, You know, you bring up the openness, of the blockchain, which is one of the great things about it. But yes, 100 percent, you know, having access to the source code absolutely gives threat actors a leg up than having a close, you know, a closed system. And I'm not necessarily saying one is better than the other. But I think there's a full sense of security in saying something's open source. I can't tell you how many times someone's like, oh, well, you should use Bitwarden over LastPass. Why? Bitwarden's open source. So my first question to them is, are you personally reviewing the code? Well, no, somebody else is. who? I don't know, but I'm sure somebody else is and I'm sure they would find the issues. And I'm like, there's a lot of assumptions and I'm sure when you talk about open source. Um, The second piece is I say, do you actually go to the repo and do you to compile the code yourself? Well, no, what do you mean? I go, well, by saying it's open source, you have the source code. So you should be compiling that source code and that's what you should be using. So you're using the executables that are provided by the organization while they're open sourcing the code. So I think people just have a basic lack of understanding when you say something's open source, what does that mean? But as far as the openness of the code, yes, the threat actors now have the actual source code that they can review and look for vulnerabilities. And then I think the third piece of it is just a lack of uh, maturity, I guess, if you will, in some of these companies and some of it comes down to budget. You know, again, I don't fault them if they have a, you know, three to five to even a ten million dollar, uh, you know, seed round. They're not going to devote five to ten million dollars worth of security, so they're not necessarily going to go out and hire a five to ten person cybersecurity staff. They're going to look for that unicorn of, you know, CISO who's also hands on keyboard, who's also a networking expert, who's also a source code reviewer, who's also a blockchain person, who also understands offensive security as well as being a, you know, an amazing blue teamer. Like those people don't exist. And I think that's also the problem, too, is we're not really setting the proper expectations uh, when we're building out uh, security. So as you
0: mentioned, you know, startups don't have uh, millions and millions of dollars to throw at security when they're first getting started. What are your recommendations for how much security is enough for, you know, the first year or two of a company? And at what point do they need to come in with something more serious? And what does that more serious
1: approach add that they didn't have before? That's a, a great question, you know, and, and I think the first thing I would say is how do you look at security? And I would I would really advise a lot of companies to look at security not as something they have to do, but look at it as a way to help them differentiate their project from other projects, um, you know, to make it part of the project. You know, blockchain and digital ledger technology is cryptographic, it's security by nature. So don't look at this as, a call center. Look at this as something that will help, number one, you know, differentiate your project from, from somebody else. Um, as far as the approach to security, I hear from a lot of projects, let me gain traction first, and then I'll focus more on security. And that cannot be the, the worst mistake you can make. Because once a project is an MVP or it's launched, it's really hard to hit the brakes from a growth perspective and say, well, I'm now going to revisit foundationally my architecture and what i built. So what I would advise them is, you know, take a risk-based approach and really understand where are the most important things that I need to focus on right now in order to build things right foundationally. Because if things are not built right foundationally, you can't just add, you know, from a defense and death perspective, just start adding on. So I would say, you know, I know it's going to hurt, but, you know, hire a really talented and really experienced actual CISO. And when I say an actual CISO... A real CISO is strategic, a real CISO is somebody who understands strategy, who understands where is the market headed, what are people looking for from a security perspective, you know, if the end goal for this particular project is to sell into banks and to sell into enterprise, you know, understanding what that market is looking for is much different than looking for what a Web3 native organization is looking for. So understanding that market from the beginning will help you grow and also just help you, you know, with with the subsequent rounds. So strategically, absolutely, you know, go for that really big hire and hire that, but then also don't expect a unicorn. Don't expect that really strategic CISO to also be someone who's hands-on. So also figure maybe one or two hires underneath them. um, You know, someone who is good from an architectural standpoint that understands just general web two type security. And then also someone who's more on the software side so that way they can understand, you know, SDLC best practices as well. So I say at a minimum, those are the three hires that I I would recommend anybody needs.
0: Awesome. That's super, super helpful. As far as DeFi goes, are there any particular protocols or um, that are written in a certain language that you just wouldn't trust because either that language is too new or too buggy or just not fit for finance? You know, we've seen so many hacks that have come from uh, either Solidity smart contracts or bridges to Ethereum or one blockchain or another that it's really got me wondering, you know, is the code itself the problem? You know, maybe we should be looking for something different that's, you know, um, you know, for example, Tezos is written in Mickelson, and you've got Cardano that's written in Haskell, very old languages that are difficult to use but are tried and true. And as we say over here, you know, only time tells the truth. Or can you trust something newer like Solidity or Move?
1: How do you feel about it? So that's a great question. Right. And like there is, you know, we always joke like there's, you know, security through obscurity is not a thing. But, you know, listen, in in some respects, there is right. Like if there is a a language, maybe per se, that is not widely used, you're going to have less threat actors that are maybe knowledgeable of it that are maybe not going to necessarily spend a lot of attention on it because there's not going to be that bigger yield on it on the on the other side of it. You're not necessarily going to have the large scale community that is constantly pushing and testing and finding those vulnerabilities. So I think it's it's kind of a balance of the two to be completely candid. You know, I personally would rather look for a community where there's a lot more attention on it, because if there's a lot more attention on it, there's going to be people that are looking for those vulnerabilities for you to patch it. Um, so I don't necessarily say one language is better than another. I think I would look more on you know, what is the developer community look like? And I would probably opt for communities where there's more developer activity, because I think with the more developer activity, you're, you're going to have more people looking for bug bounties, you're gonna find more people that find the vulnerabilities. So just because there's no vulnerabilities found in one ecosystem, it could just simply be that the threat actors are not necessarily focusing on it because they don't necessarily think that there's widespread adoption, which could potentially lead to, you know, a large, you know, theft. Um, you know, on, on the other hand, you know, again, you know, there's that security through obscurity. So if, if there isn't that, you know, pushed from a threat actor perspective to look into a potential market, you know, there is, I guess, you know, the the, the argument that maybe that is the area to go for. You know, uh, you know, likening back, and I'm not dating myself, but, you know, back when, you know, I was working in desktops, there was always this, you know, Macs are better than Windows you know, because there's no there's no potential vulnerabilities and you know I remember back then just rolling my eyes saying that's that's not the case. it's just that from a, from the enterprise world 99.9% of the machines are running on Windows so that's where the threat actors are focusing their attention on. It's not that one operating system may be potentially a little bit better than the other. It's just that with the bad guys that are not necessarily focusing. Code is code and code could be broken and I think that's what everyone needs to understand
0: So with that harrowing realization, what do we do to keep ourselves yeah. safe? As yes. safe as possible anyway. So buying a Mac and sleeping tight is out of the question now. Um, but what do you do? If you're the average person, you don't have enterprise security. You don't have millions of dollars to even invest, let alone build your own proprietary infrastructure. Do you just get like a hardened copy of CentOS and throw it on a machine and keep the machine
1: off as much as possible? What do you do? Just as an average person. So, I mean, it's it's a great question, right? And unfortunately, I think it's a problem that hasn't been solved because, you know, I could walk somebody through a very, very secure setup, but if you're not technical, you're not necessarily going to know how to use it. And there's always this debate on security versus convenience. You know, as security goes up, convenience goes down. Could I talk to somebody about an air gap laptop that's sitting in a safety deposit box at a bank? And at any time I want to do any sort of, you know, crypto transaction, I have to go to the bank with my air gap, do an offline signing, put it back in the safe. You know, potentially, yes. But that from a convenience factor, that that that's not good. Can I go even further and say, you know, multiple safety deposit boxes and use multi signatures. Yes, that's even better. Now I've spread my, you know, keys amongst multiple different, you know, banks and physical security, and now I have to do offline signing in multiple geographic locations, but the convenience factor is now severely limited. And then on the other side of it, well, if I just keep everything on my phone and I could just sign my transaction, that's inherently more convenient because then I could just sign my transaction wherever I am. Well, now my keys are exposed 24 by 7 sitting on, you know, a mobile device. So it's finding, it's really finding that right balance between, you know, what Gives you that level of security to to the point where you're not going to find workarounds from a convenience perspective. So I think the the right answer for most folks is um, again, assuming you want to go down the road of you know adding you know multiple layers of controls, which which I highly recommend, and assuming you want to self custody, is I would say you know go down the multi signature route, um, and then you know have multiple hardware wallets, and I would say do offline signing. I think between those three, I think you're really going to significantly reduce your threat landscape. Now again, when you start looking at hardware wallets, you know, you're going to have people that say anything that has an antenna on it you shouldn't be using. So if you're looking at a ledger device, you know some of their devices have Bluetooth capability, which again, it's the convenience factor. But the security purists are going to tell you anything with an antenna has an attack, an additional attack vector. So again, it's really you know going down that model. And then obviously we, there's that other big uh, hardware wallet which has a, you know a side channel attack. So if somebody has physical access to the device, they can you know export your seeds. So it's really around this concept of defense in depth. How many different layers of controls can I put on top of it? So if I'm going to use multiple wallets, I'll always use that 25th seed word. Um, like I said, I, I always recommend using multi-sig. And then you know keeping those wallets potentially in, in different locations I think would be probably the best, assuming you're just macro holding and not necessarily doing trading every day. I think that would, again, you know re- significantly reduce the threat landscape, that coupled with offline signing as well.
0: Those are all great suggestions. And I like to throw in a few of my own that I use as well. Yeah. I have a trading wallet and a holding wallet, and I don't trade with my holding wallet. I will move Ethereum from my holding wallet to my trading wallet and let that connect to other applications and DeFi just in case, because you just never know when you can get got. I've logged into a scam exchange before and had my funds drained. Thankfully, I had that set up, so my loss was only a couple hundred dollars instead of my entire holdings. And just that's one simple thing. Yeah. It costs a few extra bucks in gas, but, um, it's so, so worth it just to have that kind of setup. Like it's like a wallet that you walk around with during the day. You wouldn't walk around with your entire bank account everywhere you go. Would you? No, you just take what you need out with you.
1: Absolutely. So, so two quick things on that. Number one, that's how most enterprise custody is. You know, you have your cold wallet and then you have it sweeping to the hot wallet before it hits the street. Because exactly for that purpose, you want to have that barrier where you're saying, you know, 90% or 85%, whatever allocation from a risk perspective. I want to have in this, when I say defense in depth, you know, it's cold wallet. So it's completely offline. And then you have, um, you know, white rules saying that the cold wallet can only talk to your hot wallet, which then goes out. And then if I want to make a trade, that hot wallet is just replenished just enough in order to make that transaction, that, that, that transaction out. So 100%. And then if you want to liken it to non-crypto, I do the same thing today with my, my ACH payments. I have multiple bank accounts and anything that does an ACH draw on my bank account does not contain most of my money and whenever I need to replenish that bank account that has my ACH pulls out I wire money from one bank account to another bank account and that's what's used to pull my ACH out so it's 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 the same type of setup that we've seen you know in our web2 world or our tradfi world that we can replicate into in, into crypto so 100% agree with your setup
0: awesome and there's another plugin I use as well to help me from avoiding that same pitfall that I ran into when I was new and it's called Fishfort, P H I H S H P I no P H I S H F O R T fish fort. There's a tongue twister and it's just a plugin you put in your browser and it monitors the URLs that you type in to make sure you're going to the right exchange and making sure that you haven't gone to a site that's supposed to be IO instead of, net or something like that and then there's a fake site up so that protects you against that it's a great tool it's free to use so fishfort was a,
1: a great help as well and and there's a number that um, you know also work on the crypto side too so they like they'll actually watch for malicious transactions so let's just say the scam that you're talking about is you know around the domain itself so say you, you know you meant to go to uniswap dot you know whatever and you went, actually went to uniswap. different TLD um, mm-hmm. and that will pick that up. Then there's, you know, pretend the, the keys were owned and you're now communicating with a completely different smart contract address. There are browser plugins as well that, you know, say work with MetaMask, where if you're making that transaction, it will actually look at the smart contract address and then warn you and say, you know, you're not communicating with the known, you know, say Uniswap uh, contract address and it will throw up a warning as well. So there's a number yeah. of those. And I advise everybody to, you know, kind of do your due diligence and, you know, look, look for those as well.
0: Definitely. And all wallets are not created equal. We just saw a $35 million hack of atomic wallet users where there should have been no way that their keys should have been available yet. uh, Yet there, it was somehow. So that was a problem. Yeah. And then, uh, sorry. And as you mentioned, um, you know, as far as smart contract warnings, that's a new feature in phantom wallet, which is now available for Ethereum and Solana and they're doing great jobs to make it easier to understand what's actually happening in the transaction before
1: you approve it. Yeah, and that, and that goes back to my earlier point about integrating security into the product and making a differentiator. You know, how can one wallet today differentiate themselves from another is these additive security measures in place. And in this case, you know, adding in that smart contract scanning is a great way for, you know, Phantom to differentiate themselves, say, against a MetaMask.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we are seeing a few steps forward a little bit at a time. There's a company out there called MediKeep, which is doing something a little bit novel. And they're using homomorphic encryption in a cloud to store private keys that are being sharded and then encrypted. Does that sound like it's secure to you or does that raise a bunch of red flags?
1: Um, I'd have to know a little bit more about the architecture. But I think you know the, the, difficulty, the difficult thing is… You know, when, whenever you're working and let's just take, you know, the example you brought before about Atomic Wall, uh, Wallet, you know, again, against the hack, you know, this always goes into supply chain. So if you're working at an organization and in this case, uh, you know, what, uh, what's it was called MediKeep. Yes. Yeah. So if you're working at MetaKeep, the question that I would ask and I don't know the answer to is, can somebody within MediKeep modify the code or inject anything into the code in order to extract those keys that are, you know, encrypted and sharded. So if it is encrypted, you know, who are, who are holding those private keys to do that decryption? So those keys have to live someplace. And then does somebody within MediKeep have access to that? Or is it standing up in their own environment? These are the questions that I would need to have answered in order to, you know, kind of make that determination, you know, but from a holistic Perspective, You know, I think, you know, these are the solutions that I think people are going to end up adopting, because I think, you know, asking people to custody their own keys in some respect on hardware wallets, while it's good for some people, it's it's likening to stuffing cash in your mattress. And that's not the way that we're going to have the proliferation of blockchain, digital ledger technology or crypto assets. We have to make this easy and it has, the security has to be transparent or seamless for the masses in order for them to onboard. So I think, you know, solutions like that, once they get fully fleshed out and we've, you know, picked a few winners that are actually going to win in that space, you know, providing these secure, you know, custody type of the solutions. I, I think that's, you know, ultimately where I think we should be headed.
0: Yeah. And seeing uh, Coinbase come out with their wallet as a service offering, doing something similar um, suggests that both companies are definitely have their, their thumb on the pulse of reality of where things are going to make it where people can just sign in with a username and password or a social sign on like they're used to. And they don't have to worry about key management whatsoever. So I just hope and pray that uh, whatever is going on on the back end is going to work and it's going to work to scale. Cause that could be a, a disaster once they've onboarded the next billion users into web three to realize that there okay. is a problem.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same thing today when you open up a bank account. I mean, we, you know, the average Joe doesn't know what's going on in the background from a technological and a security perspective it's seamless I go to citybank.com or chase.com or whoever.com I open up an account I have my username and password I log on and I I see my funds I can do some wire transfers I can transfer between accounts and I log off I don't need to understand that keys are stored in HSMs and it's doing this and I have here's my TLS certificate for my communication like that stuff needs to be hidden from most people in order for there needs to be widespread adoption yeah definitely
0: well, before we let you go, David, is there anything else that's been on your mind in terms of you know, watching the markets, watching the evolution in regulations and stuff? Are you feeling bullish or bearish for the rest of the year just in terms of
1: the growth of the crypto industry? I'm, I'm feeling bullish um, for a couple of reasons. One is you know just coming, like I said, coming back from Money 2020, seeing what's happening in APAC. The rest of the world is adopting crypto. Um, and then even in the States, like I said, you know, the, the, the enterprises that we're talking to or the web three natives, everybody's still building. Um, even though it's, you know, a bear market, you know, people aren't turning their, you know, back to crypto. It's really more about build and wait for regulation to come. I don't think anyone's thinking it's not coming. I think people think one way or another, there's going to be regulation in the United States. And I think once that happens, I think, you know, the people that are building are just building and ready, for, waiting for that to happen. So I am an probably more bullish than I've been in the last six months, then you have to come back from that conference. That's great to hear.
0: David, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us for the last 40 minutes. Where can we follow you and where can we follow Halborn for more insight?
1: Sure. Uh, Halborncom And, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and on Twitter at DSHWED. So if anybody wants to connect with me, um, you know, it's a fairly friendly community. So if anybody has any questions and wants you to just reach out for, you know, just general advice or just for networking, um, you know, I'm always willing to take a chat with anybody
0: really really appreciate your transparency and everything you're contributing to this space and we look forward to having you on again uh sometime down the road all right
1: thanks for having me appreciate
0: it anytime and thank you so much for listening to this episode of crypto 101 we'll be back later next week with another awesome guest